I cannot play like that. <sighs> hey, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Graham, and I'm the pastor here, and I just wanted to let you know that right now it is not too late for us to save Christmas. I know you've been getting the warnings. They've been coming across. It's in danger. The movies tell you we're right at the edge. It's not too late if we can find a way, if we can all work together. It's not too late for us to make Christmas perfect, right? That's what the commercials tell us. We've got to make it perfect. So I have done you a favor, and I've checked in with Martha Stewart, picked up a couple of the latest tips on how to make your Christmas iconic, but not overdone. So we're going to start with tree skirts, okay? Uh, tree skirts, the first thing that... No more of that tired velvet and burlap. It's time for some painted metallic fabrics. Yeah, you're welcome. What about some heavy red velvet draperies for the exterior of your house? That would turn it up a notch. But don't think metallics for everything. It's not all glitter metallics. Nay, nay. Let's not make that tree dated, okay? Uh, what about a more natural themed tree, a little bit more organic? Let's try to keep it that way. No more of those on-its-way-out color themes for your tables. No more of that winter wonderland color scheme. It's time to move on. Navy and white tablecloths. Think silver placemats. And why purchase stationery, right? Why purchase carts when you can make them, make them yourself from some items in your own garden? Just grow some cotton, harvest it, weave some linen, process them together, put in some fairy dust, a shot of brandy, a peppermint swizzle stick, and love. Ah, oh, love. That's the sort of thing that you can send to all your families and friends, and they're going to appreciate it so, so much, and then they will know the real meaning of Christmas. We're always looking for the real meaning of Christmas. It's a perfect Christmas is that we need, right? Because we know that it needs to be organized. You've got to decorate it right. You've got to have special homemade cookies, tinsel, turkey. You need it all. Only the perfect gift will work for your special someone. Only the perfect gift can possibly satisfy. And just how far are you from perfect? this Christmas. I mean, if I'm on the perfection checklist, you can just mark me down as a mess, all right? My planning is a mess. I can't keep up with Martha, and I'm pretty sure that I don't want to, and I'm pretty sure that I don't need to, and neither do you. There's a big separation from mess to holiness, from holiday to holy day. Christmas is not about perfection. The holidays are to be celebrated, sure, but not as performance days, but as holy days. Christmas is counted down to and celebrated because it's a holy day. And holiness is not about perfection. Holiness is not about me and not you. Holiness set, is set apart. It's special. It's uh, set apart for something special. You are holy, or at least you can be. You can be set apart for God's use. And, and you think, well, where, where would God use you in the real world with, with real stuff? This season is for you. And it's not just a through you kind of thing. You're not just a pipe that God sends blessings through to other people. You start as a reservoir. You are filled first, and then the overflow spreads beyond you to those around you. And nothing about that means perfect. Because it's all real, 
And it's all messy. The Gospels, those are the books that are written all about the life of Jesus. They start messy. Gospel of Matthew, the very first one in the New Testament, starts with a long genealogy. Thanks for that. A long genealogy of Jesus. Not exactly fun, but it's filled with stories of ugly sin and broken people. And the very first words of that New Testament, here we start with the, the great reveal of the Holy God sending His Son to earth, reminding us that God's plans are bigger than any mess that you have created or any mess that you have been dealt in life. Rahab is in Jesus' backstory. We know very little about Rahab, honestly, although it seems pretty clear that she was a prostitute. And that's kind of a lousy way to summarize an entire person's life and their being, all that they are. But that's the way we do it so frequently, right? We pick one thing. We focus on that. But God knows more. God knows the story that's deeper than that. And for many of us, we, we don't know a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the other characters that are in that Bible genealogy that's mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew, and you read some of those names. Maybe some of you get quick summaries. They come into your head. Oh, I know that story. Or their lives might come to mind. And what we remember first, see if I'm wrong, what we remember first is typically their failures. The, the genealogy is absolutely full of people who blew it and blew it big time. We, what we also know is that God transforms and uses each of those people and redeems those people and uses their varied pasts to make a difference around them. And when we become part of God's story, we are transformed and the world around us too. Out of that genealogy comes Jesus. Out of the great mess comes the great Messiah. Christmas is about God identifying with the marginalized, not the powerful, identifying with them, drawing near to them, becoming one of them, and being with them, being with us in the mess, in your mess, God with us, Emmanuel. Luke, he's the guy who wrote the gospel of Luke. Yeah, you guessed it. Uh, he does such a thorough job with the historical details. He sets the scene. He gives us this. Here's the Christmas story. I, I want to make sure you understand where it fits in time and location. So Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1, this is what he says. It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman Empire. Remember, Roman Emperor. Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Arturia and Trachonitis. Lysanias was ruler over Abilene. Verse 2, Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. At this time, a message from God came to John, son of Zechariah, who was living in the wilderness. So Luke lists all the political and religious leaders of the whole world in their world. And then he notes how the Word of God bypassed them all and came, came to crazy John out in the wilderness. The locus of God's presence and activity is not found in the corridors of great power. It came to the man who was out in the wilderness eating locusts with a touch of honey. Of the great and powerful list of people that Luke mentions who are all on the scene, which of them did God contact about the arrival of this new king who's sent to rewrite it all and to save all of humanity? Which ones? 
None of them. He did not go through a single one of the established, powerful political leaders. Nor did he connect with any of the highly influential religious leaders. The Gospels tell of a God who was, has a way of surprising us with, with where and with whom he shows up. So where is the center of God's action? It, it's not in places that, that the world deems the most put together, the, the, the most important. God's greatest places of action are hidden. They're hidden from the eyes of the socially powerful. The reach of God's action touches everything. But the center of it is on the margins. Perhaps our version of Christmas has become a bit too sterilized, uh, too, too resurfaced, too refinished. And when we do that, when we allow that to happen, something gets lost. And it's something of great importance. We, we, we sing carols like we just did. We, we, we sing Christmas carols with lyrics like, little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes, right? And you're going, as a parent, right, that never happened. We have nativity scenes in our homes, in our churches, which are, you know, necessarily Spartan. Less is more. Sanitized, and thank you very much, they're germ-free. It's all nice, and it's neat, and it's orderly, and everyone looks calm and utterly at peace. And I think that these things, they don't represent the first Christmas well at all. Our memories of Christmas are, are, are the ones that we've already experienced mixed with the ones that we feel like we are supposed to have. The feelings that, are supposed to, that we are supposed to have, something has been lost. That first Christmas was anything but neat and tidy. You got a teenage girl and a surprise pregnancy. The man that she's engaged to, to be married to, he isn't the father. In fact, God is. So her fiancé is ridiculed, shamed, thinking of bailing on her. And when it comes time for her to give birth to the child, she gives birth to him among the sights and the smells of animals. When Christians don't know the story behind the story of Christmas as well as we think that we do, we risk turning Jesus' birth into a fairy tale or a bedtime story every year. When we think of Jesus' birth, we usually picture an adorable baby Jesus laying in golden straw surrounded by Mary and Joseph, some cute little lambs and a few friendly shepherds, all lit by the warm glow of a lamp, right? And we do this because while we know that Jesus' first century birth was not clean or not sanitary by modern standards, we want it to look warm. We want it to look nice and as inviting as possible. But when we keep going out of our way to clean up the story like this, we risk sanitizing it, sanitizing reality. And in doing that, we diminish the good news that's in that story. The truth is that in first century Israel, shepherds kept their sheep in damp caves where the ground was thick with manure the roof was covered with soot from fires that have been lit for warmth because it's freezing out there. And the walls are caked in bird droppings from all the nests built into the crevices of the caves. And you can still find those caves in fields and open spaces all around the town of Bethlehem to this day. The entrance to that cave might only come up to your chest so that you would have to duck down to get in. 
And, and then when you're inside the cave, you probably couldn't stand up straight. The inside would probably smell like a mixture of mold and sheep manure. And if I or, or, or you were, were, were to enter that cave, we would probably gag as we came in. There would not have been any golden hay for Jesus to lay in and no warm light, just damp, cold, mildew-covered rock and an overpowering stench. But this is where our hope was born. When we think of a manger, we usually think of something like this. You've got the X-shaped wooden legs and you put some wooden slats between them. A wooden trough filled with straw and little eight-pound, six-ounce, six, six, eight-pound, six-ounce newborn infant Jesus nestled snugly in the warm and inviting hay. But most likely, the mangers were actually made of stone, not wood, and that they would have been used to hold water, not hay. So this means that Mary probably had to empty out stagnant water from a cold stone watering bowl in order to place Jesus in it to give him a place to sleep while she tried to recover from a zero medication childbirth. No hay, no warmth, no comfort. And we know that there were shepherds there. We hear about the shepherds at the birth of Jesus, but the art and the movies, they, they, they take these shepherds and they tell us they're probably grown men with full beards, right? But culturally, you know what? This might surprise you. The shepherds in the Middle East are typically young girls. Even to this day, the youngest daughter is, in the family is usually given the role of tending the sheep, caring for the sheep, unless there's no girls in the family, and then it goes, the shepherd job goes to the youngest son. Now, when it comes to the wise men, oy, we always depict three wise men, right? But that's not what's recorded. It's not recorded in any of the Gospels. It's just recorded in the carols. It's Matthew, one of the 12 disciples, who was uh, going to tell us about the Magi or the Magi, which is a Greek word. It means priests who visited Jesus, okay? But Matthew doesn't say that there were three of them. He never says that, just that they had three gifts. So historically, the Magi traveled as part of a large caravan, up to 20 or more men. Why did they do that? Because they're traveling with valuables like gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they didn't want to get robbed. So it's interesting that Matthew, he writes this in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. All right? What we learn from this verse, this one verse, is that the Magi were not at the birth of Jesus, but came after Jesus was born. And where did they go? They went to Jerusalem before they went to see Jesus in Bethlehem. And then Matthew, in verse 9, he's, that star that the Magi are, are so famously following stopped over the place where the child was. Notice he used the word child now. He's not saying infant, not saying baby. And most theologians, they believe that the wise men that showed up in Bethlehem was when Jesus was probably two, maybe even three years old. Then, after this child is born and he's greeted by all of his guests and a little bit of time passes, there's a death threat 
on the life of this little child. They have to get up and they have to flee and they run as refugees to another country in the middle of the night, scared for their lives. So in this story, there is shame, there is ridicule, and there is danger. This is a messy story. And I think that's in fact the point The point is that God enters into this mess, into my mess, into your mess, the mess of the whole human story, and so that He could rescue it and transform it. So where is God in your mess? God's specialty is raising dead things to life and, and making impossible things possible and making our minds say, how? How did you do that? But you don't have a need that exceeds His power. The Christmas story has a lot of people interrupting. Most people are all about the tasks of normal life. They're surviving and they're working. They're just trying to get by. They're in the fields. They're far away from religious activity. But they're also right in the middle of temples and ceremony. And maybe the takeaway is that we can't escape God. So my prayer for you, for us tonight, is that God interrupt us. God interrupt us to be with us. Maybe we change the carol to, Oh, come, all ye faithless, joyless, and defeated. Because Christmas, the the, the Jesus birth celebration is for the weary. It is for the messed up. It is for the broken. If your life is not Instagrammable, then Christmas is is for you. And one of the best biblical descriptions that we have um, about the gift that God gave us comes in the middle uh, of uh, Jesus trying to explain to a man who thought that he already knew everything. He had trained and he had learned and he had been accepted. He'd even been leveled up in society and in the religion of his people. He received his explanation and the explanation made his head spin. He's filled with thoughts like, but how can this be? I don't get it. This is not what we have been expecting at all. And maybe the same will be true for you. Perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible, John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that He gave. Because He loved, He gave. Kind of sounds Christmassy, doesn't it? He gave His one and His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, shall not be lost to God, but have eternal life. The very next verse clears up some of the fear of the messiness in us that we have in our relationship with God. I don't know what to do with this, but uh, verse 17, it says, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. He didn't come to condemn us, all right? He didn't come to condemn you. He already knew that there was a mess He already knew that we were a mess. He didn't come to hammer it home. He didn't come to find fault. He didn't come to accuse. He didn't come to condemn. But He came to save the world through Himself. He saw the problem. He recognized our need. He wrapped up the gift that we needed, a Savior. Not the gift that we expected, the gift that we needed. And he sent himself to earth for us. And when he did that, he forever changed the notion of God and holiness throughout the world. 
He redefines the whole idea of mess and holiness. And our gift is not to be perfect, but to live out the gift of love. Because God loved he gave. We've been given that love. We live that out. First John chapter 4, verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Nine. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. Verse 10. This is love. Okay, not that we love God, but that He loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, for where we fall down, for our selfishness. Eleven, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Because we love, we give. There are so many gifts to be unwrapped. There have been so many sales and so many purchases and payment plans, but the mess that we get caught up in kind of gets hidden from our sight. So much of that time, we, we overlook it entirely. It's even invisible. To describe it seems ludicrous. How could that be true? But it requires a transformation of our hearts and our minds to see it clearly. Sometimes, sometimes you can only see things when you are surrounded by the unfamiliar as a contrast. So in our pursuit, pursuit for more, or the perfect gift, or the next gift, you might begin to sense a quality in the people around us, in our culture. And our culture has a sickness. This is part of our mess that God came into. Think about this. You will not find the world weary in the impoverished nations where they struggle and suffering is the most prevalent. You meet the world weary in the advanced, wealthy Western nations. This begs for reflection. And Advent is about learning how to wait for God. In our high-product, high-tech, high-speed, high-stress age, we're not very good at waiting. It feels too much like doing nothing. But it's not doing nothing. It's part of the gift that we have been given. It is part of the gift that still needs for you to unwrap it, for you to open it, for you to accept it, for you to implement it. In Advent, God invites us to consider whether the darkness that feels so much like a tomb might actually be a womb. It births a new way of being, a new way of thinking, not the way that everyone expects, not the way that everyone imagines, and not the way that many, so many demand. Advent ends tonight. Tomorrow, we celebrate the gift of God. We celebrate the coming of Jesus. May you unwrap the love of God once again and move from the tomb of darkness and drudgery and into the womb of new life and discovery. For God so loved the world that He gave. Father, thank you for your gift of love to us. Thank you for Jesus. For, thank you for the celebration of him coming and totally redesigning existence. Thank you for opening up a pathway to peace with God that we don't have to worry about being lost to you. Inspire us as we interact with each other.
that we might also be those who love well in spite of the things that are happening around us. We would love well and do it because we are inspired and motivated, changed by you. Thanks, Jesus. Bless my friends that are here listening right now and those who are at church online as well. Reach to them where they are and offer them peace tonight, I pray. Amen.